So we're going to start together a new series that's going to go for seven weeks. Um, it's a really good uh, Advent series. It's the book of Revelation. No, I'm just kidding. That's not really a good Advent series. Um, no, we're not going to do the whole book of Revelation. I wish. The book of Revelation is my favorite book in the Bible. Now, you may think that's a weird thing to have be your favorite book, you know, a weird book to be your favorite book of the Bible, right? That's what you're all thinking. It's, you know, dragons eating babies and all sorts of crazy prophecies about bowls and cups and wrath and all this stuff. Um, it's actually a fantastic book. And if you don't understand the book of Revelation, if you look at the book of Revelation, you think, you know, this is nuts. Um, go watch. There's a, a YouTube channel that's really phenomenal. I highly recommend it. It's called The Bible Project. And they have these really short um, these short videos explaining books of the Bible and themes in the Bible. And we always say that a good teacher, a bad teacher takes a, um, an easy idea and makes it complicated. And a good teacher takes a complicated idea and makes it easy to understand. And I have never <clears throat> seen anybody who does that better than the guy Tim Mackey who runs that Bible Project page. So anyway, if you want to learn more about Revelation, go watch that. Um, it's, it's not a crazy book. It's what we call apocalyptic literature. And all the it's full of symbols and all sorts of stuff, and we're not supposed to read it super literally. Um, now, uh, no time to get into all that now. Go watch that video if you want to read more. But the background, real quick, because what we're going to do together is we're going to read just chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. And um, <clears throat> let me give you the background here. Is John the Apostle spent a whole bunch of years um, traveling around, and he spent some time in the city of Ephesus with, after, um, you know, after Paul was there, and after all that stuff, after the New Testament period, uh, or the book of Acts anyway, John went to Ephesus, and he actually lived there with Mary, Jesus' mother, and he took care of Mary uh, like a son, and uh, then Mary passed away, and, you know, John got older, and he was in charge of a bunch of churches, including Ephesus, but in uh, what's now modern Turkey, and at some point, the Romans, uh, the emperor, uh, got a hold of him, and they tried to kill him. And what they did was they took him, and they put him in a, a big pot of boiling oil. And they thought, this will probably kill him. And uh, he got messed up really bad, but I guess he didn't die. And so in, in late in his 80s or 90s, they think, uh, John was exiled to this small island off the coast of what's now modern Turkey called Patmos. And from there, from the island of Patmos, at one point he was praying, and he was... Um, spending time with the Lord, and he had this vision. And in the vision, he sees Jesus, and that's Revelation. This is the book of Revelation. So we call it the Revelation of John. And chapter 1 is his grand vision of Jesus, and I wish I could do um, a whole sermon on that. Then chapter 2 and 3 is uh, he writes some letters to churches, the churches he used to sort of be the bishop of. He, was, uh, he sort of oversaw seven, eight, probably more than that, but there are seven of these letters. And so Jesus says to him, hey, write all this stuff down, including these letters to these seven churches. So these letters are not from John to the churches. They're actually from Jesus to the churches. And John is just sort of the guy writing them down. And then after this chapter, what comes next is my favorite two chapters in the Bible, Revelation 4 and 5, the grand throne room vision, and then all the revelation starts to happen with the bowls and the, the, the cups of judgment and all that sort of stuff. So we're sort of at the beginning here, um, and we're, we're only going to read these seven letters together. Now, there are different ways that people read the book of Revelation, and there are different ways that people read these letters. Um, I want to say a few things about them before we get going, though. The first is that... Um, uh, well, there's a few options in how to interpret this. Some people say uh, that each church represents sort of a different kind of church, 
Some people say that each church represents a church in history. So the first letter is to the church of Ephesus. We're going to read that today. And that represents the early church. And then you'll say, they'll say, then the next letter represents the church from 200 AD to three, you know. The problem with that is a lot of it doesn't really fit. And that only makes sense if you think the American church is the pinnacle of the church, the Laodicea letter at the end. And, you know, like a newsflash, right, America is not the end-all, be-all of the universe. And so I don't really buy that interpretation. Um, <clears throat> how we're going to take it is like this. Each letter was written to real churches in real situations. Um, but... Uh, let me see. Let me show you this here. Uh, here it says, at the end of the first letter, it says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So he did write that churches there at the end is plural. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So each of these letters was written to one specific church in one specific situation, but each of these letters uh, also has application to the wider church. My guess is that all seven churches read all seven of these letters, and they eventually became part of the Bible, and they were passed around. And so even though we're not part of the original church that this letter was written to, there's a lot of stuff here uh, that, we can, uh, that we can take and we can learn. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to ask, what was the historical situation of this church? And then what can we learn from that? Where do we share similarities and differences which eat with each of these seven churches? And I think you'll be surprised at how much we have in common with believers across, <clears throat> across all different ages. Now, so like I said, there's seven different letters here. The question, another question people ask is, what, why the order of the seven? You know, why start with Ephesus and end with Laodicea? And there's all sorts of theories uh, like I said, there's the historical theory that it goes, these it represent different ages and all these other ones. But the actual reason is very simple. Uh, here's a map of the seven churches. And in green, so this is a map from my favorite Bible, by the way, if you're looking for a Bible, is called the ESV Study Bible. It is fantastic, the notes, the resources. So this is just a clipping from the map uh, in the ESV Study Bible. Now, if you look, the first church there is uh, the church in Ephesus. Then the second letter is the one in Smyrna, then Thyatira, or Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So the little island there at the bottom where it says Patmos is where John wrote, this, uh, wrote, these, wrote the book of Revelation from. So the very simple answer is why are these in the order they're in is because that's how you, a mail carrier would drop them off, right? As you just go, if, as you walk in a circle, it, this is the order of the letters. And so people write these big, fancy uh, academic papers about why this one is in this order and the Greek and all this stuff. But I mean, the real answer is just because that's the, you know, his house was next and then his house was next and, uh, you know, his church was down the road from his church. And so uh, that's why they're in these orders. Now, the last thing before we jump into our letter today is I want to show you each of these letters, for the most part, there's one or two variations of this as we're going through. But in every one of these sermons, this is going to be the flow of the sermon because these are the flow of the letters. Each letter has these different sections in it. So they all start with some sort of a description of Christ. Uh, then it moves to the commendation or just, you know, what's good about this church? Uh, there's one or two letters where Jesus skips this part. And when Jesus gets to the, hey, here's what I really like about your church, and he just doesn't say anything, that's usually bad news. Uh, then there's the part, the rebuke. Here's what you guys are doing wrong. There's also, I think, one letter where, uh, one or two, at least one, where he skips the rebuke altogether. That's a good thing if you're the church where Jesus has nothing bad to say about your church. Um, the next section is the solution. Here's what you guys need to do based off of this rebuke. Um, and then here's what's going to happen if you don't obey my voice. And here's what's going to happen if you do. 
right? So this is the flow of every one of these letters follows the exact same pattern. Again, I just ripped even all the wording off of this from the chart in the ESV study Bible. And so um, the end, though, the conquerors, uh, promise to the conquerors is very important, right? Um, because this is showing us what it looks like to live as a faithful church for God in an area where everybody's out to get you. Uh, in the book of Revelation, they call it Babylon is the imagery. How to live as the church in Babylon. Uh, and um, yeah, these parts are really important. All right, so let's read today's letter. Um, we're going to read the whole first one. It's to the church of Ephesus. Let me read this to you. It says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus, right? The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not found uh, and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent, and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says uh, to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So that's the letter. So let's just walk through this bit by bit. The first thing he says, is, and he says this to most of the churches, right? He says, to the angel at the church uh, the church of Ephesus. Now, every letter is addressed to the angel at the church of Smyrna, at Philadelphia, whatever. So the, again, I'm only going to say this once, and then I'm going to skip this in the rest of the letters. But what does he mean when he says to the angel of? Um, Sam Storms, who's an author, he wrote a book about, some, about, the book, uh, about Revelation. He wrote a few books. Uh, he heard somebody, he was asking the congregation, you know, well, what does it mean? Uh, he heard somebody, he was asking the congregation, you know, well, what does it mean? when a church uh, has an angel and somebody in the congregation shouted out, well, I don't know about angels, but I think we've got plenty of demons. <laughs> and I thought that was pretty funny, completely irrelevant, but, <laughs> you know, real healthy church there. Uh, now, what does that mean? What does it mean to talk about, well, the angel? Well, there's a bunch of different interpretations. Some people say that when he writes to the angels, he's writing to some sort of a senior pastor of the church, to the angel um, the problem here is there's really nowhere in the New Testament we read anything about a church having one pastor. For the most part, churches always had a plurality of what we call elders. And uh, so to say, okay, it's to one person. The other thing is um, people aren't angels. Uh, one of my biggest pet peeves, you know, like uh, if you go to a funeral, well, God has his angel now. That doesn't make any sense. People do not become angels when we die. I've heard that kind of thing before, that sort of thinking. And this sort of muddies that up. So that's the first option. He's writing to the pastor. I don't really buy that. The second option is he's writing to some sort of prophets in each church. I don't really buy that either for the same reason I don't buy the one about pastors. Um, the third option is the angel is symbolic for the church itself. Um, and the problem with that one is it forces us to misuse the word angel. Um, the Churches are never called angels in Scripture anywhere. Uh, the, the last option is some sort of a guardian angel, maybe, each church. Uh, angels work for God. That's what they do. And 
uh, part of what they do, if you remember from the book of Daniel, right, there's an angel in the book of Daniel who shows up to protect Daniel, and they're, they're involved in this spiritual warfare. And so the idea that an angel watching over each church is totally plausible. Um, and I like to think that the church we're going to start together is going to get assigned an angel, right? Maybe his name is Tom. I don't know what his name would be. Um, probably hates the Dodgers, too. If he's here, hey, Tom, see you when I'm dead, you know, we'll talk about it. Um, but here's another problem with this one, is why write a, a letter to the angel guarding each church and not to the church itself? So the answer is, uh, I have no idea why he talks about the angel, and I don't think anybody else really does. What we can say is, when he's addressing them to the angels, we should say he's not addressing them to somebody outside the church, but something inside the church. And anyway, I gave you the options you can choose for yourself, like a choose-your-own-adventure sermon. All right, let's keep going. So, uh, he, he says, to the angel in the church of Ephesus. Now, let's talk about Ephesus for a minute. This is what Ephesus looks like today. Um, it's, it was a, the most important city in Asia Minor, which is what we call today modern-day Turkey. And it was a major city. Uh, right now, if you look at... No, this picture is facing uh, east. But um, right now, the city of Ephesus is a few miles inland, uh, these ruins. But back then, it was actually on the water. The water line has moved. Um, it was a port city, and there was a river that ran across Turkey and then into the water, uh, into the sea. So it was a major port city where a lot of goods were shipped back and forth. It was also a major religious city, um, and it was one of the major centers of what we call the imperial cult, which means they worshipped the emperor there as God. Um, and so there was a temple of Julius Caesar, there was a temple of Augustus, of Claudius. All these temples were in the city of Ephesus by this point. But most importantly, if you remember from the New Testament, from the book of Acts, it was the center of, they had a goddess there, her name, it was the cult of Diana or Artemis, that she had two names, Diana and Artemis, and uh, she was a fertility goddess, and there was a huge temple, this is a reconstruction of what this temple would have looked like, there was a huge temple to this, uh, to Diana here, and uh, this temple was one of the first ancient banks, so it was a place where you could uh, where money would be protected, you could drop your money off, and it would be protected by the goddess. But here's another important one. It was also a sanctuary for fugitives. So if there, there was sort of an unwritten rule that if you could make it here, nobody was allowed to touch you. Nobody was allowed to get to you. And this, actually, this site was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, uh, partially for that fugitive reason. And so one of the biggest scandals in the ancient world that you've probably never even heard of, uh, but, you know, this was the... Uh, I don't know. This was a huge thing in the ancient world. It was Cleopatra. You know Cleopatra? Anthony and Cleopatra. You guys saw the movie, right, back in the 50s? Uh, okay, well, she was actually a real person. Um, and a few years uh, before Christ was born, she had a half-sister. And uh, because of all the politics of, oh, is she going to take the throne, that sort of thing, her half-sister escaped and for years lived at this temple because she knew her sister wanted to kill her. And then Cleopatra sent a bunch of thugs. They broke in, and they stabbed her to death anyway inside the temple where she was supposed to be safe. And it was this huge scandal that Cleopatra sent people and broke the temple's protocol. And so anytime somebody in the ancient world thought of Ephesus, they thought of that story, right? The same way when I talk about Waco, right? You probably think of that guy in the 1990, whatever it was, with the FBI and all that stuff. That's what the city of Waco is known for. It's the same kind of thing, right? And so this was a, a huge city, 250,000 people, which is not that big for now, but was a huge city in the ancient world. A lot of cult religions, a lot of business commerce. There was a huge Jewish population here. Um, but it was also, this city was one of the most important cities, just sort of in the movement of Christianity. 
Um, there was a church here that was founded, and we'll talk about this in a minute. Paul visited here on his second missionary journey, and then on his third missionary journey, he actually stayed here and made this sort of his home base for over three years. Uh, and he had a school here, and he taught here, so he was one of their first pastors. Then their second pastor was a guy named Timothy. You may have heard of him. Uh, so Paul writing the pastoral epistles to Timothy, that was while he was a pastor in the city of Ephesus. And then after him, John the Apostle came and was the pastor for a while again, and he lived here with... Uh, uh, Mary, who probably died here and is buried somewhere in Ephesus. And so by the time of this letter, the book of Revelation, sometime in the 90s AD, John has uh, moved on. He's on the island of Patmos in exile. Mary was almost certainly dead by now. Uh, things have changed. And so um, let's take a look at this letter bit by bit, starting with the description of Christ. He says, to the angel of the church of Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So Jesus now speaks to his church. He says, the words of him who, um, this phrase is only used a handful of times in the New Testament, but all, it's all over the Old Testament. When you see something like, thus says the Lord, when you see that phrase, uh, it's very important. And so the first thing we learn about our king as we read through these seven letters is that he is not silent. He speaks to his churches. And I think that's very important. Now, we don't have John sending us letters you know, to the church in San Francisco on Union Street, right? We don't have that exactly. But what we do have is his preserved word sent to us for thousands of years. We've had these letters. <clears throat> and we can read these letters like Jesus is writing to us as well. And so the words of him who, and then this description, he holds the seven stars uh, in his right hand. Holds the seven stars. So the seven stars are the churches. Now, let me tell you the coolest thing I ever did. Uh, a couple years ago, I, act, I reached the peak of cool that I'll ever be. I'll never be as cool as this. What I did was I was at my dad's house in San Jose, uh, and there was a fly in the kitchen. You know, the, you know when there's a fly buzzing around and it's driving everybody nuts? Okay, so we're sitting at the little, he has a little breakfast nook kind of thing, and we're sitting there, and the fly is buzzing around. So we were, I was talking to my dad, and I kind of heard it behind me, and I saw it in my peripheral vision, and I, and I grabbed it. And my dad said to me, you didn't get it, right? You didn't catch it. So I put my hand right in his face, and I opened up my hand, and the fly flew away, and he was so mad at me that I didn't crush it. Now, I tell you that story, I mean, just so you know, I'm like Bruce Lee with this, you know. Um, no, no, was it in the, the thing, do it with the chopsticks, you know, grab the fly. Uh, anyway, I'm not that cool, I guess. But anyway, my dad, uh, <laughs> so I let the fly go. The point is, at a certain point, right, I had that fly in my hand, and I was holding it tight. I had absolute control over this fly, and I could have crushed it in my fist. I could have taken it to the garden and let it go. Uh, I used it for my own purposes. I threw it in my dad's face to make him know that I actually caught it, right? I could have fed it to a spider, whatever, right? But that's the idea, right, is Jesus says, I'm holding the, 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 um, the churches, right, the seven stars. These are each churches. This represents the churches. I'm holding them in my hand. That's what he says about his absolute control over what is happening to us. But it's not that just he's this uh, overpowering ruler holding a fly in his hand, right? He also says that, it says that he's imminent. He's right here. He walks among the seven golden lampstands. He says that too. In Genesis 3, 8, we're, we're told that God would walk with Adam and Eve in the, cool of garden, in the cool of the garden, if you know that verse. This is the same imagery, right? Jesus isn't just controlling his church in his hand. Uh, he's with us now with his perfect presence. 
Um, D.A. Carson, Don Carson, has an amazing teaching series on the book of Revelation. And in it, he says, describing this, he says, he walks among the seven golden lampstands, kind of as, a, as if he's examining, checking things out. He walks uh, among the lampstands, and he knows the deeds of the church, right? He knows what we're up to because he's here, and he's walking around his people. And so this description of Jesus is at the same time, right? He's powerful, and he holds, the, holds us in his hands, but then he's right here among us. Uh, he's with his people. He's imminent. And this reminds me, uh, this reminds me of, you guys like uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? You know the, the Narnia books? Okay, I read these books probably once a year, all six of them. I love these books. Um, uh, let me read to you from the first book, From the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. When the children first hear about Aslan the Lion, who represents Jesus, it says this, uh, Is he a man? asked Lucy. Aslan a man? said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is a king. Uh, he is king of the wood and son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Do you not know who is the king of the beast? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Who, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I should feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Oh, that you will, uh, dearie, and make no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or they're just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Uh, don't you hear what Miss, Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. I love that because that captures the imagery that John's trying to get at here perfectly. This is like the first description of Jesus. Is he safe? No, well, no, but he's here, you know, but he's approachable all at the same time. He's all of these things. Uh, Lewis did, I think, a great job there describing Jesus in his description of Aslan. So at the same time, he's awesome and he's good. Right? He's powerful and huge, and he's right here among his people. So let's then read um, what he says to his churches, right? What he says to this church in Ephesus. He says, uh, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. And then skipping down to read verse 6. This is also part of his commendation. Yet this you have. You hate the work of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So here's what happened. Here's what he commends them for. That they stayed faithful even when it was hard. Right? Being in a major religious city center, Ephesus uh, was full of these uh, cults and these idolatrous religions. It was very pluralistic, too. People didn't just worship one god. People worshipped all different kinds of gods. It was a pantheon of Greek and Roman gods, including the Roman emperor. And there was considerable pressure at this point in time. Uh, the emperor was a guy named Domitian, and there was a, a considerable pressure to not follow Jesus. And Christians were heavily persecuted because this is what would happen is uh, he passed a law that said every year you had to show up to some, you know, like their version of the DMV or whatever. You had to take a little pinch of incense, you had to burn it on an altar, and you had to say, Caesar is Lord. And then they would give you like a driver's license. You had to carry that around with you everywhere you went. And it said that, yes, you have, set, you have sacrificed to the emperor this year, and you're a faithful follower of the Roman imperial cult. Well, you can see the problem with that is Christians are not going to burn incense to a, a, a man and say that Caesar is Lord. They, they weren't going to do it. And so it caused, all different kind, it caused all kinds of problems because they would be, as a Christian, you'd be walking around and some Roman soldier would stop you and say, hey, I need to see your certificate. And you would say, well, I don't have one. 
And depending on the soldier, that could go one of two very different ways, you know, and it happened a lot. Um, also, in Acts 19, we know about Ephesus. Uh, there were the Christians in Ephesus uh, had such an impact on the city when Paul showed up that there was a, a group of guys who used to be silversmiths, and they would make idols and sell them, and that's how they made their money. And they put such a dent in the religion of this city that uh, the silversmiths rioted because they weren't making money anymore. Nobody was buying their idols because everybody was following Jesus. And so they started a riot uh, that caused all kinds of problems for Paul. Now, this was 30 years before the book of Revelation was written. 30 still happened before it was written. But you can imagine that even later on, this pressure was still happening. This stuff was still going on. And all throughout that, this church stayed faithful. They stuck up for truth, for right doctrine, uh, for the things that they believed. Um, and if, you know, some of you porch people watched with me, uh, we read the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And in 2nd and 3rd John, what we, we talked about was how the church needed solid teachers, people to stand up and to teach the word. And so what happened was not, there weren't enough for all the churches. There weren't enough people teaching who knew enough to teach the Bible. And so this network of traveling preachers popped up, and they would travel from church to church, and they would teach uh, and they would stay for a little while. But there was a problem is that some of these guys turned out to be nuts. They were false teachers. And so in the book of Second John, John gets really tough. And he tells these churches, look, don't show these turkeys any hospitality. Don't, don't shake their hand. Don't invite them into your house. Definitely don't have them teach in your church. And here in Ephesus, we see a similar kind of thing where this church is commended probably for sniffing those guys out. So what happened was a guy would show up to the church and he'd say, hey, I'm a traveling preacher in the, Ephes the Ephesian elders would sit him down and ask him his story, and they would sort of get a sense, man, this guy is not really a follower of Jesus, or he's in this for selfish reasons, for personal gain or something. And so they told him to, you know, pack your crap and get out of town. And so, um, you know, uh, ride into the sunset kind of a thing. And why did they do that? It's because they loved the church. And so um, what these elders are doing is they're protecting their people by, and the people together are all sticking up for the truth of God. And this is exactly what Paul told them to do when there's a really amazing section of the book of Acts in Acts 20, where Paul sits these, well, not these elders, this is 30 years before, but sits the Ephesian elders down. And he's like, look, I'm going to give you guys a charge, sort of a sermon on how to be an elder. And so for church leaders, this is a very important part of the Bible, but this is part of what he says. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves and uh, to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers or elders to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And he says this, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone uh, with tears. And so what we see, this was 30, 40 years before. So for 30 or 40 years, these elders have stuck up for that. Uh, they have stuck up for truth. And they also, in, like we saw in verse 6, they hate this false teaching of this group called the Nicolaitans. Now, we have no idea what these guys taught. There's a million theories. None of them really matter because nobody knows for sure. But the idea was they had some sort of a false teaching, and Jesus hated it. And so did the church in Ephesus. They were sticking up for his teaching. Now, in our culture, as we read this, this is very taboo, right? Our culture is so pluralistic, isn't it? Everybody is supposed to decide what they believe for themselves, and, you know, you define yourself in your own terms. And in Western civilization, really the only sin that you could commit is saying that somebody else is wrong about something. And it's the worst thing that you can do. And so we hear people all the time sort of 
take this out of context where Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged when you're trying to talk about somebody else's beliefs. Well, the thing is, in verse 15, just right after Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged, he says this, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So right after Jesus says, judge not lest ye be judged, where he's kind of talking about something else completely, he talks about, hey, and by the way, you should keep keep watch for these false prophets. And so there's this balance, right? We're not supposed to judge and condemn people. That's up to God. Who gets the salvation? Who gets the grace? All that. That's not up to us. We don't decide that stuff. But inside the church, we are supposed to be, uh, we're supposed to inspect fruit. He calls us to be fruit inspectors, right? To judge the spiritual activity of people who claim, and especially teachers who claim to be followers of Jesus. And so next time somebody, you're trying to have a conversation with somebody about their sin in their life or something like that, and, then, and they say to you, judge not lest ye be judged. You say, oh, I'm not judging. I'm just a fruit inspector. That's all you got to tell them because uh, that's what Jesus told us to be. And so the Ephesian elders and the Ephesian church have done this very well. And so Jesus says, good for you guys. You have been very faithful fruit inspectors. You, you hate false doctrine, right? Cool. Then uh, that's where the letter ends and we can all just go home, right? Now, see, that's the sad part is then Jesus, uh, oh wait, I had that verse there. Um, he continues in verse four. He says, but I have this against you. Uh-oh. All right, here we go. You know, he said the nice thing to get that over with. I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Wow, that's kind of tough, right? Look at what he says. You've abandoned it. Not that you lost it. This is very important. That He says you've abandoned it. That those are two different things. You left it for something else. Right? You didn't just oh, wake up one day and say, oh, I don't know where it is. Right? You've turned and you've left it for something not as good. And one of my favorite stories is I love Seinfeld. And if you're going to hear me preach a lot, you're going to hear a lot about Seinfeld. So you better get used to it. And when you come over to my house, I have a painting of Kramer hanging in my, my kitchen or in my uh, uh, living room, not kitchen. Uh, you know, and every now and again, somebody comes over and they'll be two, three hours into dinner or something. And they'll lean. Is that Kramer hanging on your wall? Yeah, it is. Uh, anyway, so I, I talk a lot about Seinfeld. Well, the creator of Seinfeld was a guy named Larry David. And one of my favorite stories is, and they actually used this in an episode about George, but it, this happened in real life. He was a writer on Saturday Night Live, and uh, they never used any of his sketches, and they never used any of his material. And so one day in a meeting, he, in a writer's meeting, or right after the, um, they filmed on Saturday night, uh, he went into Lauren Michaels' office, the creator of Saturday Night Live, and he screamed at him, I can't believe you, never used my sketches, I don't need this, I quit, <laughs> slams the door. He walks out. He's feeling pretty good about himself. Yeah, I'm leaving SNL. And then he's walking home. And on his way home, he starts to calculate how much money he just walked away from in his contract. And he gets home. And by the time he gets home, he realizes, wow, I just left something really amazing, and I have nothing to go to. So he goes home, and he thinks about it. What am I going to do? And he comes up with something. I think his friend Kramer, actually, the real Kramer, came up with the idea, why don't you just go back to work? And so then on the Monday morning, he walks into the writer's meeting, and he sits down, and he said nobody ever really said anything to him about it, and he kept his job at SNL. The point of that is he left without, he, he abandoned what he, was, what he was doing for nothing, for, for something that's not as good. And this is exactly what the church in Ephesus did. They abandoned their first love, right? They didn't just lose it. They walked away from it. But f what, what does it mean, their love? Well, the first option is, uh, there, is it their love for God? Did they walk away from their love for God? 
Um, and again, when the church of Ephesus was founded in Acts 19, here's what happened. There was a bunch of uh, sort of ignorant believers, and I mean that in that they actually didn't know the whole truth. They had heard John the Baptist and that sort of stuff. And Jesus, uh, sorry, Paul comes to them and says, hey, do you guys know about Jesus and the Holy Spirit? And they say, I have no idea what you're talking about. So he baptizes all these people. They come to faith. The church is founded. And then he spent three years teaching at this church. And so you can imagine this church started on fire, right? Paul the apostle founded this church. He was their pastor. He taught them. But over 40 years, uh, you know, things fizzled out and they kind of, they left that love for God and they said, okay, we're going to graduate now to something better. We used to be just totally on fire and now we're going to move to more advanced parts of Christianity. That's one option. The other option is, is it their love for others? Like they used to love each other so well and take care of one another and um, that that love sort of faded over time too. And I think it's purposely left vague because I bet it's both, um, is that we can't really have love for one another without love for God, and all of those things are, are um, uh, super connected, right? And so this is what this church has done. This is what God is challenging them, what Jesus is challenging them on. He's like, guys, uh, you have left, I'm going to skip this quote, sorry. Um, you guys have left your first love. So what do they do about it? They've left their love. Well, he gives them a few action steps. He says, remember, verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you had at first. So he tells them three things. The first one is this. Look, you guys just remember from where you've fallen. It's not that this church was never loving and they don't know how to do it. They just left it. So he says, remember how that used to be. Now, what you need to do is repent from what you're doing, which means just turn around and walk towards something else. So turn away from what you're doing and turn back towards what you remember and just do the works you did at first. Go back to the way it was. There's no graduating from the very basics of Christianity. Right? And this is one thing that uh, I see a lot as I'm pastoring and meeting and discipling people is they think, okay, well, now I've gotten over the basic stuff. Let's do the advanced stuff. And my answer to that is there is no advanced stuff. Right? The basics of Christianity is like love God and love your neighbor. That's, they asked Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And that's what he said. Right? He didn't get into a big theological. It's just love God, understand and be blown away by his grace, and then let that turn you into the kind of person who loves his neighbor. And that's what Jesus challenges these people to do, is return to the love that you had at first. And if you don't, the consequences of that are the second half of verse 5. He says, if not, I'll come to you. I will remove your lampstand from its place uh, unless you repent. So the lampstand, again, is the church. These lampstands, the seven golden lampstands, in, is uh, symbolic here in these letters for the church itself. And I wish there was a pretty way, there was a way to pretty this up and explain why it doesn't mean what it says, but this means exactly what it says. Jesus says, look, if you guys don't do this, I'm going to tear your church down. Because without love, what's even the point of having a church? And it's why Spurgeon says, uh, he said this, Charles Spurgeon, a church has no reason for being a church when she has no love within her heart or when that love grows cold. Lose love and you lose it all. And that's such a good point, right? This is what Jesus is saying. Without love, what's even the point? What are we even doing here? All right, so verse 7 then, the promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. So the Spirit now says to the churches, and the, for those of you who conquer, who and when we talk about conquering in the book of Revelation, we're not talking about conquering in powerful victory. We're talking about conquering in humble submission and service. So as Babylon, the world around us is trying to crush us, right? The church perseveres through that by living like Jesus, by being humble and by loving 
uh, and being faithful to our Lord. And he says, look, if you do this, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is the paradise of God. Now, again, there's this really cool bit here, if you know about the ancient church, uh, which is why it's important to talk about these uh, first century cultures. But part of the, um, the cult of Diana, of uh, Artemis, the Ephesian goddess, was this whole bit I told you about fugitives running to the temple. Now, in the middle of that temple, there was a big giant tree. And the idea was you run into the temple and you grab hold of the tree, and then you were supposed to be safe. And so here, there's sort of a play on words when he's talking about the tree of life. He's saying, look, you guys all know about that tree of Artemis, but the, the truth is that that's nothing compared to the tree of life that God offers, right? You, this, this, this cult in your, your town has this fake version of a grand actual reality. So don't trust in these lesser trees is kind of what he's saying, because I've got the actual real tree waiting for you. And this imagery is picked up again later in the book of Revelation, where we're told that the tree of life uh, is in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. And so I think that's really cool. He's saying, look, God is better than this fake version that you guys have there in Ephesus. Um, and so that's our letter, right? That's the letter to the church of Ephesus. Now, let me tell you this true story. I had to look this up, and it actually is a true story. Uh, there was a husband and a wife who retired and bought a motorhome, right? That's the dream, to buy a motorhome, travel around the world, or the country anyway maybe a little bit of Canada. Uh, anyway, they planned on living it and doing that. And at one point, they were driving on Highway 1 in California. You guys know Highway 1? Down like Big Sur, on the way to Ventura, kind of down there, uh, Santa Barbara. I love that on the motorcycle. Mm -mm, that's good stuff right there. Anyway, uh, on Highway 1, and the husband has been doing all the driving. At this point, he's exhausted. He says, "Hun, I'm going to go take a nap in the back. She says, sure. So he goes back to take a nap. She grabs the wheel. She's driving, she's having fun, you know, driving this big motor home around these turns. And she just hadn't really, it kind of reminds me of my grandparents. They traveled around a lot and my grandma never drove until my grandpa died, like once. I don't think she even had a driver's license. But anyway, so this lady doesn't drive a lot. And so after a few minutes, she realizes she had to go to the bathroom. So she flips on the cruise control and then she heads back to the can because she thought that cruise control was an automatic pilot, like on a Tesla or an airplane or something. So they come up to the first curve She's in the bathroom. He's taking a nap. You can imagine what happened. They flipped over the edge. Uh, they actually, I'm only telling this story because they're not in a box somewhere. You know, they were fine. <laughs> they rolled around, and I think she broke her arm, and they, it turned out uh, that she, you know, nobody was permanently uh, messed up, but you get my point. Here's the thing. Too many followers of Jesus think uh, that that's how the Christian life works. I'm just going to flip this switch, and I'm going to hope that things work out for me, right? I'm going to go on to cruise control, and my spiritual maturity is just going to pop out of nowhere. But the truth is, without intentional driving uh, in your life, you're going to end up like these believers in Ephesus. You're going to lose your first love. You're going to abandon your first love. You're going you're gonna to move on to something that's not as good. And so, um, as we're talking about the porch and this sort of stuff, you know, starting this new church together. One of the things we have at the porch is we have this, we call this the, our discipleship pathway. And in this, and we've talked a little bit about this with some of our core team, but not a ton. Uh, anyway, uh, this is our framework right here for growth. And let me show you how this works. And then this is how we're going to end the sermon. Okay. So there's three parts of this. The first part at the top where it says connect, we connect with God. And we do this very intentionally, and there's a lot of ways we do this. The main way is through our Sunday service. Uh, so services are built around preaching and worship, and uh, where we hammer these gospel truths into our hearts. But also involved in this connecting with God is we have corporate prayer. I love that Robert Murray McShane quote where he says, What a man uh, is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. 
right? And so we're very, we want to be prayerful people. We want to meditate on the Bible. And so as, we're, as we do all these kind of things, right, we're, we're getting to know Jesus more and more by connecting to him. And what happens then is that moves us into where we start to grow. And we, we learn more about the faith. And one of the keys to this is we grow together. And so there's a lot of fellowship that happens with the missional families and that sort of stuff. And we help each other grow and we study the Bible together and we learn theology together. And so as that happens, then there's a fire that lights in our heart. And one of the problems is a lot of churches only do those first two things. We're going to connect to God and we're going to grow. And then we're going to connect to God and we're going to grow. And they miss out on this third part, which is the strongest uh, thing that grows our faith. I'm running out of time. Let me finish this really fast. Uh, that grows our faith is then together we multiply, right? As, as the more you learn about the faith, the more you want other people to know about it as well. And so you, you're learning how to share the faith with the people around you. But what happens here, and the reason, there's a reason this is a circle and not a line, is because when you multiply, that, when you see somebody new come to faith or somebody new growing in their faith, that really lights a fire within you as well. And then the next time you come back to connect to God, your connection to God is even stronger because your faith is grown as you see him use you in his kingdom. And then as you're connecting to God, that helps you grow even more, and then you become better at multiplying. So really, this is a spiral. And you, what we want to do is spend our whole lives in this spiral, connecting, growing, multiplying, connecting, growing, multiplying. And we're actually going to talk about this a little more today at the lunch, uh, this multiplying bit uh, at our prayer lunch we're going to have right after this bit. Uh, but anyway, I want to say... Um, the reason that we have this and the reason that most churches have some sort of a discipleship pathway is because it's a helpful framework to keep us from um, falling into this Ephesian trap of abandoning our first love, right? Because what this does is this is taking our first love and it's driving it deeper and deeper into our hearts. All right, so I'm way over my time. Uh, so that's where I'm going to end. I'm actually going to pick up uh, the sequel to this is going to be uh, at the lunch today. There's a little bit more I want to add. Uh, we'll talk about it at the lunch um, in the how, we're, how do we multiply, because that seems pretty terrifying, right? Um, so we're going to talk about that today. All I want to say, though, to end is I want us to be intentional about this, because we do. We serve a wonderful Savior, a wonderful Lord, who has revealed himself to us and who has called us to love him and to not abandon uh, that love. Amen? All right, let's pray.